This is the Kingdom Movement Podcast, a place where we will explore through conversation how discipleship, theology, and community really can transform our world. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teachings and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Reverential awe came over everyone, and many wonders and miraculous signs came about by the apostles. All who believed were together and held everything in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone, as anyone had need. Every day they continued to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those who were being saved. So Paulo, that was a reading from Acts 2, the very end of Acts, verses 42 through 47. Um, And I just felt like it was an appropriate, um, let's say, verbal image of what we're going to talk about today. So where we last left off, we ended with the resurrection of Jesus, and we kind of talked about why why that changes everything. Um, but today we're going to be talking about the book of Acts, briefly, briefly, like just explaining what the letters of the Bible are, not really going into much detail, but really it's all about the Jesus people. That's the title of this episode, and who are these people in this whole movement that has continued on even to this day that we belong to that started from that resurrection, right? Um so I'm excited about this one. It's a good one. I feel like Acts is a great narrative book in the sense of it's easier to follow as a story than maybe even the Gospels because they differ. But yeah, man, yes. I'll let you speak. Yes. Uh, hello to everybody. Yes, I, I'm too excited. I'm excited for this episode too. So in the world now, there are around 7 billion people and 3 and 1 of every three people identify as Christians. Wow. You know, so this episode is going to be us talking about how did this uh, Jewish sect uh, started uh, and became this big uh, religion that today is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that we didn't get a chance to touch on in the last episode, that's a great way to start, um, is the ascension, right? So we talked about the Great Commission that Jesus gives Um, Therefore, go out in all the world and make disciples. But if you're following the narrative in in Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually writes the book of Acts, and it's kind of a direct sequel to the book of of Luke or the Gospel of Luke. So if you're kind of like a narrative story person, right, you like to read the Bible as a story, kind of what we're doing this series on, Luke and Acts are a great way to start because Luke— uh, specifically goes into the book of Acts and Acts picks up right where Luke left off. And at the ascension, Jesus, the very last words that Jesus says to his disciples in the book of Acts before he enters into heaven, fulfilling the prophetic um, prophecy of Daniel 7, right? Ascending to the right hand of the Father. That's what the ascension is all about. Um, he says, you will be my witnesses first in Judea, um, Jerusalem, sorry, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. So as we explore the book of Acts, we actually get to see like 
that that's what happens right throughout the narrative um, that it starts in Jerusalem it goes from Judea then into Samaria and then eventually into the whole world but I think it's really really important again we live unless we get into the context of the Bible we don't understand how revolutionary this is. And you touched on something really important. At the beginning of this, it's a Jewish sect. It's not a global religion in the way that it's come to be believed today or seen as today. But it is a specific sect of belief within Judaism or the Judeo world, right? The Jewish world that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So after the ascension, Jesus basically promises his disciples um, that he's going to send the Holy Spirit, but they need to wait in Jerusalem for this for this to happen. And if you come from a Pentecostal movement, Kingdom movement is based out of a Pentecostal movement, Assemblies of God. Um, that's who we partner with. That's who we would say that we quote unquote belong to. Um, we are a Pentecostal movement. So the next portion of the story is vital to a huge, huge swath of people uh, in their belief of who we are as a people of God, right? So I don't know if you want to maybe touch on that that story a little bit. Uh, about the... So the upper room, the falling of the Holy Spirit, the igniting of the church. Oh, yes. Yeah, I feel like this is one of the very famous story. Yes. Uh, of the Bible. So yeah, basically after Jesus Christ ascended, went back to heaven, he told them to go and wait for the spirit to be released to them um, in Jerusalem, I think, yeah. Yes. Yes. So they waited there for how many, three days? Uh, I, I honestly don't remember how long they were in. I think it might have even been like three weeks or something. Yeah. It just shows how, how prepared we were. No. <laughs> no, but they wait for some period of time, basically mm -hmm. praying and fasting. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. So yeah, they waited there, uh, and then suddenly there was this noise, this mm. uh, thunder, I think. But but there was this loud noise. Yeah. Uh, and then they saw something weird, like like a fire sitting on top of each each uh, each one each one of the disciples' head, and. After that, they just started speaking all these languages that people around them were could understand. But those languages were not from uh, Palestine. They are not Palestine language, but mm. they were language from out around every other nation. Yeah, I think. Um, so the verse itself says, "Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven residing in Jerusalem." So this is like people from all over the earth. They were Jews. They were, they would call themselves Jews, but they were a part of what's called the diaspora, which is like Jewish communities throughout the entire world that had come for Passover. Yes. So yeah, um, maybe talk a little bit about that. Pentecost mm -hmm. was any celebration in Jewish culture where yep. people would come back to the to to Jerusalem. All people, all the tribes in that sense who would who had scarred this who had spread who spread around the whole earth in that era's map so everybody who went to like rome and all these other countries they would come to the to, to jerusalem mm. to celebrate this this part this festive moment and then they would go back to their countries so what's what happened here is those people grew up in those countries, so grew up speaking those languages. 
And then there were people who grew up in Jerusalem who they're not supposed to know this language because they didn't grow up in all these mm. other places. But these people came, they know how to speak the language that they were speaking there because they have traces that's their home, I would say. Uh, so when they under- they start listening to these people who never left the never left uh, Judea speaking those languages it was weird for them. Uh, so that's when comes that that debate like hey who are all these people speaking our native language how what is happening are they drunk and allow yeah probably they sorry they took too much wine and then <clears throat> i was like no but it's like early in the morning how yeah. do they get drunk and everything and then peter starts speaking to them yeah and i think the really important theme of pentecost so you know we talk about speaking tongues as like a Pentecostal thing. And I definitely think there's a, a heavenly language or whatever you want to say. But I think the important theme of Pentecost is the reversing of Babel. So we talked about in our very first episode in the series, Babel was the place where men gathered in pride and kind of hubris and did not or basically denied, yeah, God's vocation to fill the earth, right? Because they wanted to make a city in a name for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did God do? He confused their language and scattered them. But now with the outpouring of the spirit, God is reversing Babel. He's drawing all men back to himself. And instead of confusing language, he's speaking in a language that all people can understand that now is the time for God to be glorified in all peoples. Um, and so I think that is a huge, huge, huge theme that we can miss if we're not careful and in fact the nation the table of nations if you will in genesis 10 while it's like the old testament names for those places are the same names within the new testament so they have new names but they're the same locations um of the nations that are listed off right after the outpouring of the spirit i won't do it because yeah they're not going to mean anything to us necessarily but those nations line up to the same nations that were scattered are the same nations that are represented in this moment in acts right and so it's definitely luke is intentionally saying babel is over the nations no longer you know should go to their own gods but the one true god is drawing all men back to themselves which is following this theme right again of uh, jerusalem judea samaria ends of the earth so with the outpouring of the spirit it's starting in jerusalem here's the spark to the church right first that these jews that are from all over the world um, are beginning to hear and recognize that jesus is the true messiah right yeah and some other thing that's really important i think for this this story is also the fact the the fire you know that comes into the disciples because if you read we, we spoke a lot about this and when we're talking about the Old Testament and everything. But what happened is the fire would represent God's presence in the temple. If you see, for example, the story about um, Moses uh, at, when he, at the burning bush. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fire that comes and ignites the bush. And then Moses wants to get close and, and God says... Uh, take off your sandals because this is a holy place. So you have the idea of fire, God coming, God, God's presence is represented by this fire. And then God tells him because that have that story happens in the Sinai. 
that mm. God tells him to bring the people to that exact moment, which is the that exact place, which is the Sinai um, mountains. And then once he go to Egypt, and then he really take out all the people from Egypt. They go to Sinai, and then also there you have the story of fire coming mm. and sitting in the tabernacle. Well, in the law that is given. So I just looked it up because I wanted to remember because it is significant. Pentecost celebrates the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And so where Torah was given before at Mount Sinai, the Holy Spirit is now writing that law on the hearts of men, just like promised in the prophets, right? That instead of being on tablets of stone, it would be on hearts of flesh. So again, it is the reversal of Babel. It's the giving of a new kind of law, a new kind of covenant marked by God's spirit for not just Jews now, but all the nations, right? Exactly. And also it just represents God saying that his dwelling place place is no longer the temple. The fire is no longer the fire that represents God's presence is no longer in the temple. Mm. But that story of Jeremiah when they uh, when they when God's presence leaves the temple and then he says that he will dwell in people's heart. And then this fire that comes into those pe- those people is the God saying that now you are my temple. Now I dwell in people's heart. So that's 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 one of the big points about this story. Yeah, and so this becomes a monumental moment. Um, the Bible says that 3,000 people on that day believe that Jesus is the Messiah and begin listening to the apostles. So the church begins to develop. So the little verse that we started with off like this podcast is kind of the representation of what the early life of the church looked like, right? They became this tight-knit community that worshiped together, that fellowshiped together, that lived together, that broke bread together. Like even on the back of our shirts, we have a piece of broken bread, right? And it's meant to be community, family, our core value. Um, But what's interesting, you know, like I do want to talk about the way a little bit, what that, because the early church was not called Christians. It was actually called the way, right? And the way, um, was literally this idea of like there is a way of life there's a way of living there's a way of being that jesus has created for us right and i think that gets at um, the deeper level of what it actually means to follow jesus Um, what's funny though is christians which is later mentioned in the gospel is first spoken of the followers of jesus in a city called antioch which we'll become familiar with later on Um, but it literally means little christ so these people so reflected Jesus the Messiah that people made fun of them and said, oh, look at these little Messiah people running around. And so even the name Christian should give us an idea of what these people actually believed following Jesus meant. It meant literally replicating who he was in their lives, meaning like if I were to be Jesus in this moment or if Jesus was me in this moment, what would he do, right? The kind of cliche, what would Jesus do bracelets? But like, that's how they lived, right? They practiced the way in the life of Jesus. They took it seriously. And God took it seriously, you know, when there's a story in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they bring money and they lie about the amount and they are struck dead, right? And you can kind of recoil and be like, what's going on here? But God took very seriously um, especially at the beginning of the church, what this community was meant to be like. They weren't going to be like the rest of the world, right? Greedy and lying. And Peter even says to them, you didn't lie to us. You lied to the Holy Spirit, right? And so there's a ser- it says fear and awe fell over everybody because I really believe God was trying to say, this is serious business, right? To follow the way 
and what I'm doing is a totally new radical way of breaking in and you know there's a tone to be said I guess if that makes sense yes yeah and I feel like one one of the big thing that we have to notice about this book is what the message that is trying to say is when Jesus followers are faithful uh, are faithfully representing Jesus their story will look like Jesus story mm. in the sense of they will have a great time they will have amazing moments healing and doing these amazing things and also they will have bad times Miles, some of them are persecuted some of them are killed and everything so that's 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 the base the one of the base that that this story is trying to say like how does it take what it, what it takes to be Jesus forward and I feel like for us too we can start noticing that for example in my life you know it's be, it's been great sometimes I just feel like great I have this amazing gift that I can just uh, sleep and dream about someone's being being sick and then go to church the next day and then on my on my on my left side someone who is going through the same thing mm. is sitting there and God just tell me hey go and talk to this person and I talk and exactly what I dreamed out that person is feeling but then sometimes it's challenging in the sense of leave your country leave your family mm. just come here you know so I just feel like this story kind of setting up this this um, pattern yeah definitely so just to kind of fast forward through some of the the smaller details the church kind of begins to um, regulate itself figure out fit people in certain roles there's a guy named Stephen who is serving and God's spirit is moving powerfully through him he basically gets put on trial um, for saying you know some bad things against the law of Moses that's not what he was saying um, but then he basically goes through a whole long list of the heritage of um, Israel and Judah and gets to the point and basically calls them out and says you guys aren't even following it because if you would you would recognize that Jesus is Messiah the leadership isn't like this. They stone him and kill him. There's kind of an ominous figure in the background named Saul who kind of just approves. And you'll realize why Luke includes him in the narrative at this point. But he kind of just drops him in there. So the reason why I want to fast forward through that is so we get to this idea of Judea, right? So now it was in Jerusalem. The spirit fell. Now people are going out because of this. Stephen has been killed. And it says people begin to scatter. They leave Jerusalem because there's a bit of fear that, okay, are things going to happen to us? So Philip, one of the disciples, he actually goes into Samaria. He has this encounter. Um, I believe he deals with kind of like a, a warlock, witch kind of dude, puts him in his place. And even the Samaritans begin to believe, right? And we saw the seeds planted with Jesus, but now just like he promised, so there's Jerusalem, Judea, now even Samaria. And then there's kind of a fun story where Philip meets an Ethiopian on the road who's reading the book of Isaiah. He doesn't, like, I don't know what this means. And you know, the Holy Spirit directs him and says, hey, this is your moment. Tell this guy. And the guy's like, well, why don't I just get baptized here? Right. I want to follow this Jesus. And so even the nations are being reached at this point, like even with this Ethiopian. And it's kind of fun. I don't want to go too much into the long conspiracy theories or whatever. But it's fun that to think there's a heritage in Ethiopia of having one of the oldest churches in the world because of this Ethiopian that met Philip. You know what I mean? And so it's just cool to see there are ramifications even today and this idea that you know that the gospel is a western thing but really it was in ethiopia before it was ever in europe you know what i mean yeah. which is kind of a fun fun thought to have 
I don't know if you have you want to share anything about those stories or if you want to move on to the next thing. Um, yeah, I think you covered the most. I think that's one of the most the fascinating thing about this book in the sense of like how he he focused on on the small details of like just going there and sharing and then it just leave it, it, it yeah. doesn't continue the story and then what happened is people try to fill into this void and just bring all these theories and everything yeah that messes with the book so I, the one thing too that i think is important in we'll explore this even in paul's journey in acts there's this idea of discipleship is key right and a lot of the letters that paul writes is essentially discipleship training and teaching yes. Because um, there's times that he can stay in a city for multiple years to help that church kind of get a strong foundation. But there's other times like uh, the Thessalonian church where he has to leave in a hurry. So they're like, uh, has Christ already returned? You know, like are the people that are dead? Or did they miss out? You know, because he didn't have time to explain some of these things. And while that while the in a perfect world, you know, we would have the opportunity to have years of investment. I think the Ethiopian eunuch's a great example of like the spirit also can do the work, right? That this guy was obviously familiar with the scriptures because he was reading the book of Isaiah, but now the scriptures is open to him to see Jesus through it all, right? And that he didn't need to go through a 12-step curriculum in order to be empowered by the spirit. You get what I'm saying? Um, so there is a delicate balance. I'm not saying that we shouldn't disciple. If we have the opportunity to have deep-rooted discipleship, we have to do it. There's yes. no... There's no reason not to, um, but there's also room for God's spirit to move uh, how he wants to. We don't have control of the spirit. The spirit should have control of us. But anyways, the story then continues to the conversion of Saul. So Saul basically is known as this guy who's persecuting the church. I think it's really, really important. This is essential to understand. Saul is not someone who believes in Judaism and is against Christianity. It's not a battle of two different religions. Saul sees, because he's from the Pharisaic sect, Saul sees the Jesus movement as basically going to ruin or disrupt the kingdom of God's arrival. So we talked about the Pharisees had an agenda. They had a belief of this is how God's kingdom was going to arrive. So to go around and proclaim a dead Messiah in Saul's eyes, as the person who who is God's promised Messiah, he thinks this is going to get Israel completely off track. And he is zealous. He loves the word of God. He is devoted. He is, you know, one of the elites in this movement of Pharisaic belief, right? And so to him, he believes he's working for the God of Israel by persecuting the Jesus followers, right? So he believes that they are, like you've said, a Jewish sect that is going to get fellow Jews off of track. So he has to do something about it. There's a, a character in the Old Testament, we didn't touch on him, named Finhas, who is him and Elijah. So Elijah, when he kills the prophets of Baal, they basically become an archetype for Jews of zealous righteousness. So Paul uses the word righteousness a lot, or zeal. He says, I was zealous for the Lord, right? Or for, for Yahweh or for the scriptures. And so when he uses that word zealous, even the zealots are taking this Finhas identity to slay the apostate person in order to bring purity to Israel. That's how he views his role. Um, until he's on the road to Damascus, right? To persecute followers of Jesus. 
And N.T. Wright has a really interesting perspective on his Paul a biography book where he talks about there's a certain prayer and meditation that really devout Jews would do. And their goal through this meditation was to see the face of Yahweh. And so he talks about like how Paul is looking at the chariot of fire from the prophetic image. And, you know, he's just about to see the face of God. Right. And like only the most devout people would be able to have this opportunity. And he just talks about perhaps when he saw the face of God, God opened his eyes to see but the face that he saw was Jesus. And you can imagine that his whole world comes crashing down because here's this guy that he would like to see dead and squashed out for good. And he realizes the very God he's been pursuing is this Jesus, right? So Jesus rebukes him and says, yo, bro, what do you, he doesn't say, yo, bro. That's the Jake Johnson translation. But he's like, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me, right? And Saul's eyes are both blinded but opened, right? Yes. Yes, um, it's it's so. This story of Paul is kind of very sad story. Sometimes you can see it that just his his realization because one of the big things you said about zealots is like we have if we need to kill so that we can keep uh, the good track of Jesus coming, and then we will do that. Mm. That's exactly, it. and then that's what he was doing. You know, and then just imagine you believing into something and being willing to kill for that thing. And then suddenly you just realize like, oh, man, it's not that mm. you were really wrong. And the people you killed, you know, you killed, but those people were right and you were wrong. And I just feel like that adds to his humility with all. If you start reading the story, you just see Paul with this humble person. In this person who understands that some people won't understand him, some people will be afraid of him, and the story shows that shows yeah. some of disciples being afraid and scared of him because like this person was just serious in coming and coming and killing us, and now we don't know where to put him, and also just moving forward, you know just those people God tells them to go and meet him, yeah. kind of it's challenging moment to have to destroy the fear you have because this person was coming to kill you but then you have to go and obey god and also i, I was just listening to bible project and then they said something funny they said paul became zealot he was zealot so he stopped killing people uh with physically but then he started killing them with his words <laughs> because all the letters you know, yeah. is very aggressive with you with his yeah. speech, you know just like yeah what are you guys doing but yeah yeah so paul is highly highly educated probably of all the new of all the believers in the jesus movement paul is probably more soaked in the scriptures than any of them in formal training and that's you see that come out in his letters and that's why paul becomes kind of the main figure that helps shape the theological and practical implications of the church. That's why he has written the majority of the New Testament, because his letters have become so formative as he soaked through the scriptures. And it's important to note that while Paul is a very devout Jew, he also grew up in a urbanized, um, secular, philosophical city of Tarsus, right, which was at a a very highly passed through trade route. So he he knew Greek rhetoric. He knew the Greek world 
as well as knowing the the Hebrew world, right? I think there's another aspect of it too to understand that he, um, in kind of that zealousness, would have viewed the Christian movement in a compromising way because of Gentile or Samaritan inclusion. That was, for the Pharisees, absolutely a no-go. We don't touch that. We are separate from them. So to see who Paul becomes uh, in light of that is just, uh, one, humbling, Mm -hmm. two, shows the incredible power of a life transformed by Jesus. You know, we say, like, people don't really change. Um, and maybe without the power of God's Spirit, they don't. But it shows you how radically transformational the Holy Spirit can be in people's lives to turn them from one one type of person to a completely different kind of person. Um, and so Paul's conversion, make a long story short, um, he goes in Damascus blind. There's a guy who... Um, Jesus basically says, hey, you need to go pray for him and ask for his eye, open his eyes. And I don't really want to do that. Isn't this guy the one that's going around arresting and killing people? He's like, well, you got to do it. He says, all right, Jesus, I guess I will. Finds out, yes, this is legit. Like you said, Paul, Saul kind of deals with some tension with the believers. They're not sure what to think. They're not sure if they can trust him. Is this just a ruse to get to know them? But eventually um, he kind of falls off the the story of acts so he kind of goes into arabia for a bit and then they basically say hey go back to tarsus right Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think he stays there for like 10 or 12 years we're not talking about like you know a couple months he's there for a decade just chilling out in his hometown probably and again Wright, who is one of the leading scholars on paul probably really revisiting everything he's believed in light of who Jesus actually is, right? So who knows in this time of obscurity, quote unquote, this is really where all that, all the thought and ideas and theology that Paul eventually writes in his letters comes from in this time of reflection, right? With Jesus, if Jesus really is the Messiah, what does this mean? How does this, like, what implications are there in the Old Testament, how God's promises have come to be fulfilled. And then we get to see the genius of the Holy Spirit using Paul's knowledge uh, in his letters. But uh, the narrative shifts back to Peter in kind of the early uh, the early church and the disciples. So that Peter is basically chilling out. He's going around. He raises a little girl from the dead, you know, doing the things that Jesus did. Um, and then there's a visit by some servants of a actually centurion, a Roman centurion. So, you know, love your enemies is coming to fruition here. But he's kind of a devout guy. Cornelius is the centurion's name. Um, so Peter feels confident from the whole. Well, first of all, Peter has a vision and he sees all these animals and the spirit says, kill and eat. And Peter says, I've never touched any of these things. You know, I'm a devout Jew. I wouldn't eat a snake or a lizard or a pig. And the spirit says, what I've, you know, what I've created, what I've made is not unclean. You know what I'm saying? And so it's strange. Peter's like, what's going on? You know what I mean? And then these Gentile slaves show up. He goes to meet the centurion before he's even done, like sharing the gospel. He sees that these people are devout. They want to know the truth. The Holy Spirit falls and baptizes these guys. They start speaking in tongues. Like Peter's blown away, right? Here is the Romans, your worst enemy that you could possibly think of pagan of pagans and they are now filled with god's spirit like this is nowhere on the radar right um and so peter has to go back and explain it to the church in jerusalem and there's they're even there like i I don't know about this peter you sure kind of deal but they realize okay 
this is what God meant. He really is going to pour out his spirit on all people. And this is where Acts, the story of Acts, really begins to skyrocket, right? Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, and first to say, there is a, a really sad story. Uh, unless, yeah, I'll let you. Is there anything you want to add to that at this point? Uh, I wanted us to, I want just to mention a little bit about the conflict uh, between these two people, the Romans and uh did you yeah and just the conflict between the what i can say the circumcised people and non-circumcised people because that's one big conflict you will see here in the bible yes. in this book and one big thing about roman culture is that they had these public places uh that they would normally stay there naked you know mm-hmm. they had these gyms gymnasiums that it's only for men so they would go and gym in these places naked and they had these bath uh, pools that they would stay there naked and everything so it was really visible that these people were not circumcised mm. it was really visible that these people were not a part of the uh of the jewish community and it was so that that thing existed there was just it was not something that you would guess and everything so they really knew that these people they are not part of the yep. covenant yes um, so and even know. the practices of their life you know a ton of and this is we'll get into this with the letters i think more so but like a lot of the practical outworking that paul is trying to reconcile is how do jews who have lived as devout jews their whole lives begin to live and rub shoulders with Gentile brothers and sisters. So I, I think you touch on a really important point for definition. In the New Testament, your translation may say Gentiles, it may say pagans, it may say Greeks. All of those are the same things. In the biblical context, that just means um, anyone who is not a Jew, right? The other thing would be barbarians. So there's three categories, basically, in the ancient world. They categorize people like we categorize people. There's Greeks or Gentiles, which are basically anyone who lives within the the Roman Empire or the Greek-speaking world that are not Jews. There's Jews, and then there's barbarians. So barbarians are not—I mean, it is a negative connotation, but it's basically anyone that would live outside the Roman Empire. So, like, if you're a history nerd, that's your Celts, your Scythians, your— random people that are not within the bounds of the roman empire so really the story of acts stays within the greek gentile world it's only later that it goes out to the barbarian quote-unquote world but this is the conflict jews still live within the framework of we're jews we're god's people like we're supposed to live a certain way and now we have these Gentile people coming in who have lived and done things completely different than us, ways that we would think are totally wrong. So how do we reconcile those two things? And I think, you know, that is where we can take what the early church's letters are about, the tension in Acts, and apply it to our own day. Because while we may be Christians, right, we have to work out, like, the, you know, close to home, South Africa, How do white and black South Africans learn to coexist as brothers and sisters in Christ with so many cultural, political, um, and even economical differences, right? And these were the exact same issues that the early church was dealing with, right? Because it is, you know, they didn't categorize it as racism, but there is a bit of prejudice towards one another, you know? 
And so how do we learn to see past those things and become one people, the people of God, right? Stepping out of our cultures, the Gentiles felt pressure because they would stop going to the festivals that worship gods. They would quit buying the meat that was sacrificed to idols. And in a world where community is everything, you're going to stand out like you just dipped yourself in red paint. You know what I'm saying? And so th- there was a sacrifice on the Gentile end that they had to make. And for the Jews, it was learning to become willing to accept people that uh, didn't follow the Mosaic law, right? Didn't do everything um, a certain way that they believe that they should. And it wasn't just about exclusion, but inclusion in a way. And you definitely can see that on the two sides of many spectrums and many different cultures, right? Yeah, and I think as Africans, because of the colonialism and everything, mm. I feel like we can a little bit uh, relate to what is going on with these people in the sense of, for example, I feel like South Africa is is one of the biggest examples because most of African countries, they just kicked out everybody after, for example, Zim, Mozambique, we gave him 24 hours to leave the country. So everybody, every white person who didn't accept the new uh, system that was being implemented had to leave the country in those 24 hours mm. right after the proclamation of the independence. Mm. Uh, but South Africa did something different in the sense like we will stay with you guys. So I just feel like uh, even the conflict that exists today between those two peoples uh, kind of relates to what's happening here uh, in this story in the sense of like how can we relate to these people? How can we love these people who are here? They're not supposed to be here, but they are here now. They're yeah. uh, managing most of the big things, the big companies. And sometimes we don't agree with what they're doing. Sometimes they don't follow our our mosaic law mm. in the sense of how things are supposed to go. Uh, so how can we live with that and how can we accept that and i feel like the conflict that exists in south africa just shows how hard is that step yeah so i think for this first half and i want to dive into that more and more because it just becomes more and more the tension point of the early church right the things they had to work through but basically the first half of acts basically ends with james um the brother of john being killed right um, by Herod, and he saw that this really pleased the Jews. So again, here is a Roman puppet, <laughs> you know, taking someone from the early church, just killing them unjustly, and seeing that it made, you know, the powerful elite happy. And he decides to take up Peter, right? And it says the early church prayed and prayed and prayed that Peter would be released. Peter, you know, is in jail waiting for the trial the next day. An angel comes, sets him free, um, and he believes it's his dream. People think it's his ghost or whatever. Um, but they see, okay, Peter has been set free. They're excited. But I think there's a tension there that we all can live with. And it's this. It, and it is this question boiled down to its like maybe most simple form. Why does God do certain things for some people and certain things for others? The early church prayed for James and they prayed for Peter. James was killed and Peter was released. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And there are times when we look and we see someone maybe who's been healed from cancer and then someone we love has died from cancer. And we can say, God, why did you answer that prayer? But you didn't answer mine. Right. And, you know, the and we and maybe we feel like, 
that's the problem why I can't believe in God. But the early church had those exact same things happening. But what's so interesting is, even though James died, they didn't quit stop. Like, they didn't stop praying for Peter, right, to believe and trust God. And so I think there is, in the midst of it all, a trust, you know, that James understood. And Jesus even warned Peter, you know, I've called you to follow me. What is it to you if I ask John or James or Philip to do this or that or to, you know, it's between me and them, right? And that's a hard place to live. It's not always a comfortable place to live. Um, And it's not always a... A place we want to be but jesus invites us to to go to him in that i don't think he's afraid right and he doesn't want us to stop praying and believing that he can move and act um, and i just wanted to pause there because i think that's a really important idea to know or you know have in our minds that the early church dealt with all the same things that we dealt with in their own context and way um but those were questions they had to wrestle with and fight with, but they didn't stop believing and trusting, and God still moved miraculously in them. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, yeah, that's that's one important thing. I feel like just learning and preparing for this podcast, just realizing what is this book about, mm-hmm. you know, and some people at the Bible uh, Bible Project he uh team was just suggesting the renaming of the the book in the sense of this book it's not exactly about the act of the apostles but it's about the act of jesus through the holy spirit you Mm. know into the apostles yep because jesus you see that jesus christ is the one who is steering the boat in uh, in in all directions so once you know you see the story in that sense you I feel like they knew that that was what that's what was that is what was happening during that time. So they knew that Jesus is the one who is in control of this story, and they really trusted in Jesus in the sense of like everything that you will be doing if we'll have to die uh, for this, then this is gonna be, and then we will be able to go and do that. That's easy. No, that's the it's not painful. No, it is very painful mm-hmm. in, in that sense, and I feel like. Once we get to Revelation, we'll understand a little bit of the hope that comes uh, with all this. Definitely, definitely. And I think, yeah, you touched on it really, really well. And as we explore the rest of the book of Acts after our break, um, just understanding that this first half gives us a model of like, here's a church that went through hard times, went through persecution, but they didn't stop trusting. And God moved powerfully through them because they were faithful to want to know the teachings, you know, to grow in their knowledge of who Jesus was and the way of Jesus. They practiced the way. They had community that was shaped like family, and they worshiped together. And, you know, for those in Kingdom Movement, at the beginning of our podcast, we talked about our three core values, right? Worship, family, and mission. And the reason why those are so important to us is because they're a reflection of the early church, Mm -hmm. right? Yes that their main focus was to worship the risen Lord together, to live his family together, and to be missional and purposeful with their lives to proclaim Jesus as Lord, right? And to invite people into that community. And so I think if we as the church as a whole can continue to remind ourselves that's what matters, that's what matters, that's what matters. Even if we have to deal with really hard things and hard scenarios and hard consequences, um, 
the Lord is faithful and he will move. And as the book of Acts says, add to our numbers daily, right? So in the second half, we'll explore kind of more the ministry of Paul, where the book of Acts kind of goes from here um, in his Gentile mission or his mission to the Gentile world. Hey guys, we're back um, from the break. And in the second half, we're going to be exploring kind of Paul or Saul's missionary journey. So that's an important note um, with the name change in the Bible. So originally, Paul is called Saul, and then uh, he's later known as Paul, and kind of what I think his more popular name is. And this has sometimes been seen as kind of maybe like an over-spiritualized thing, where it's like, oh, once he got converted. And there may be a hint of that in the book of Acts, but the main thing is Saul is his like Hebrew name. So when he's in Palestine, that's his Hebrew name, but his Greek name is Paul. So for the rest of the journey, he's kind of going into the Greek world. So it's more about like, um, best example I would give is like where I'm from, my name is Jacob, but the Jacob name here would be Jacobe. Now, obviously people just call me Jacob, but like um, it's that same kind of scenario, right? So anyways, him and Barnabas and a guy named John Mark, who would actually become the later author of the book of Mark, um, the gospel of Mark, uh, set off on a missionary journey. They go to the island of Cyprus, which is in the Mediterranean. After that, they deal with kind of a warlock dude who's been messing with the governor. And Paul's like, basically, yeah, you've been telling enough lies and all your lies are going to make you dumb and blind and you don't have any power anymore, basically. And so the spirit knocks this guy out. The governor believes. And then they head up into what's called Asia Minor. So Asia Minor is not China. It's <laughs> not uh, Japan or something. If you hear the word Asia or Asian Minor, Asia Minor in the New Testament, it is referring to the western and southern half of Turkey, modern day country of Turkey. But it was called Asia Minor, like in the Roman days. So anyways, they go up there, they kind of do a little loop, and then they head back to Antioch. Um, and during this time, uh, the Jerusalem Council gets kind of wind of their Gentile mission, right? And they've been sent out. They felt like the Spirit was sending them. But it creates all sorts of debates, right, of um, what are we going to do with these Gentile believers or converts? Uh, so they have a council, and Paul and Barnabas are invited to this council to basically decide what are they going to do with this Gentile inclusion. So uh, you care if I read a little bit just for context? No, go ahead. Go ahead. So it said, but some from the religious party of the Pharisees. So we have to understand that there were Pharisees who had now become Christians, right? But they still followed like the Pharisaic practices. Um, so they were from the party of the Pharisees. Believed and stood up and said, it is necessary to circumcise the Gentiles or Greeks and have them observe the law of Moses, right? So they were basically saying they need to convert to be Jews if they want to be fellow Christians. Um, again, we have to think Christianity is not a new religion. It's a Jewish sect that believes Jesus is the one true Messiah, the Messiah being the king of the Jews who would come and rule the whole world. So they're thinking, okay, now everyone has to be Jews, right? They, if they're going to come under the Messiah, they need to follow the Mosaic law. To their mind, that makes perfect sense, right? So both the apostles and the elders met together to deliberate about this matter. After there had been much debate, so it wasn't like a consensus by any means, right? Um, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that some time ago God chose me to preach to the Gentiles so they would hear the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts, has testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us, right? He has made no distinction between them, cleansing their hearts by faith. 
So now why would we put God to the test by placing a, a yoke on their necks that neither us or our ancestors would be able to bear? So Peter's basically saying, like, guys, God's already put his stamp of approval on them with the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to make them follow the Mosaic Law, a law that we can't even keep ourselves, right, that we break on the daily? So then basically James, who James, the brother of Jesus, stands up as well. He's kind of become the early church leader. Doesn't Bible doesn't really tell us how or why. Um, and he basically says, let's write him a letter, the Gentile believers, and basically we're just going to ask them to abstain from three things, right? Which is, um, don't be defiled by idols, so no, no more idol worship, seems like a clear-cut thing. Um, no sexual immorality, so don't be sleeping around. And then the strange one is, don't eat anything strangled from blood. Or, yes, eat anything that's strangled or has blood in it, basically, which that kind of gets thrown out later on so yes. <laughs> the church is that. so what's so interesting about that that we have to think about is this like they were figuring it out it wasn't like you know they just got all these divine answers and had everything perfect they were wrestling with the holy spirit and each other on like what does it really mean to follow jesus mm-hmm. um and anyways then james ends with this idea of like the reason why we're saying these things is because the law of moses has been proclaimed in synagogues all around the world so the Gentiles know these are kind of the three Big. idols, you know, sexual purity and the the blood, the blood deal. Yes. The blood. Yeah. <laughs> the blood thing. Let's not I'll get sidetracked. Anyways, what were yes, you going to say? But yeah, um, the, yeah, what you said, it's very, it, it kind of shows, summarizes everything, how they were still trying to figure it out. They were not clear. They were, they didn't have any clear and objective answer in what was going on, and how they should see what was going on, and how they should see the people, uh, all these people, all these new people that they were going out and preaching preaching to them. And I feel like here is where a little bit of Paul's knowledge and preparation kind of comes out, you know. Because after that, I feel like Paul has more answers than everybody else. And I just feel like uh, what you said during this time that he was just sitting there during these years that he was sitting on his, uh, on his hometown, he kind of had a really long time of meditating and understanding every single point while these other people were also trying to slowly figure it out and just know what was exactly going on. Um, so that's why Paul, after that, he is more courageous in going into these countries and preaching into these countries and has more answers to those problems than all these other people. I think that's why they send him like, okay, you go. <laughs> yeah. So Paul decides to go on a second missionary journey. Um, him and Barnabas have a little bit of a falling out because John Mark is Barnabas's nephew or cousin. I don't remember which one. And Barnabas wants to take him again because it sounds like John Mark wants to go. And Paul's like, no, he ditched us last time. Um, forget him. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's, sorry, to backtrack on another story too, in Antioch, Peter, before the kind of the, the Pharisaic Jewish Christians arrive is eating with Gentiles is hanging out with everybody sharing table fellowship and then they arrive and Peter basically moves over to the Jewish side and they start eating at different tables segregating themselves again and Paul basically stands up and calls him out and says yo Peter 
just the other day you were eating with all the Gentiles. Like, what are you doing now? Has, you know, is this what's going to save you? You know, kind of deal. And even frustrated that Barnabas has gone over to the side with Peter. And you wonder if that feeds into this argument that they have. But anyways, Paul is full on ready to commit and say, no, we are one people in the Messiah now. These distinctions don't matter anymore. And I think it's important for us to understand, like, even in our own beliefs, we can believe something's right, but it still is hard for us to put into practice. And I think that's exactly for Peter. Peter knew what the right thing was, right? But he had been a Jew his entire life. And so to put a totally new way of living and interacting into practice is hard work. And we need each other to call each other on the times that we're being um, two-faced, I guess. So anyways, they set off on this journey. And Paul has a strategy in his mission, especially when he gets to Greece, but also in Asia. You see, Paul's understanding of Jesus is that if he is the Messiah, that means he is now the Lord of the world, right? That his new creation is breaking in with the giving of the spirit, that the old is passing away, and that if Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar, the guy who claims to be Lord of the world, the the empire that claims to bring peace and prosperity by the sword, right? It says, uh, there's a gray uh, line by someone, I don't remember who it was in history, it was a contemporary of this kind of time period, and he said, Rome brings peace, or Rome comes and proclaims peace and leaves desolation, essentially, right? And they call it peace. Um, and so this is the kind of peace of Rome, right? And so Paul is taking the language of Caesar and attaching it to Jesus by saying, no, this is the real king of kings. This is the real son of God. This is the real peace, right? That God has come and he is now king. And he's going to strategic areas. So Roman colonies were meant to be Roman culture machines. So a colony got special status from Rome, special privileges, and their whole goal was to Romanize the people of that town and Romanize the area, surrounding area. So Paul is going to key Roman cultural centers where Caesar and the cult of Caesar, the worship of Caesar, is being proclaimed. And he is standing in those places and saying, there's a, a different Lord of Lords. There's a different son of God. And so Paul is strategically doing this and you know we kind of view it as this massive success but a lot of times there's only like a handful of people that listen to him and he always starts in the jewish synagogue he always goes to the jews first in a town proclaims it those who believe he takes with him and most of the time there's a lot that reject the message um, and then he goes to the gentiles so his strategy is basically go to major culture centers um go to the synagogues first to the jews first then to the gentiles and then from there begin to build this this jesus community and if he can he usually stays there for an extended period of time but oftentimes there's some sort of uproar some commotion the jewish synagogue gets jealous and he has to leave in a hurry right um until basically he goes on to the next place and then usually that trouble follows him wherever he goes so he's doing this in asia asia minor modern day turkey um, and he wants to go more into the interior of Turkey. Um, so when it says I, we wanted to go into Asia, that's what it's saying. Um, but the spirit specifically gives him a dream and he sees a Macedonian, a Greek person, someone from Greece. Alexander the Great, we talked about him. He was a Macedonian or a Macedonian or whatever, however you want to say it. And so he feels like, okay, this is the spirit directing us there. So they sail across the sea, the Aegean Sea, and they land in... Philippi first, I think. 
Maybe. I don't remember. But, I don't uh, remember either. Anyways, so they go into this Greek-speaking world, and then they start witnessing to Greeks, right? To the actual Greeks. And they basically go down to Corinth, and they do a loop, and then they head back. But I don't know if you have any other thought. That's a super broad skip of all the different things. I guess the biggest um, point in the Greek journey is in Athens. So when he gets put in the Agora, I believe it. Yeah. No, no, it's not the Agora. I'm forget Acropolis, right? Oh, yeah. And it's not just people who want to hear a philosophy. He's actually on trial. Uh, and N.T. Wright has a great section in his biography of Paul about this. But he is actually on trial, and they are looking to see if he should be put in jail for what he is saying. But he so proves his point that some of them are actually convinced, right? Um, and as you read the book of Acts, it's it's pretty clear-cut, like, some of those things, what's going on. But that isn't as clear-cut. Um, but Paul's whole strategy is to basically go into all the world. He wants to go to the farthest edges and preach that Jesus is Lord. That is his life's mission. And then in the midst of that, he's writing letters, he's corresponding, and that's where we get most of the New Testament is his correspondence to these churches that he's planted and left. They have questions like all of us, right? Like, okay, Paul, you said this, but we don't really remember what this means or this dude's still sleeping with his stepmom, like, and we don't really know what to do or we're embracing it. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Like, don't you know, <laughs> you know? So it the letters are kind of an outworking of what does the gospel actually mean in practice in our everyday lives in how how are we meant to change because of what the gospel's done? And it's really hard because it's entering, entering for the Gentiles, a totally different way of living. For the Jews, it's calling them to walk alongside people that are in their minds quite, maybe we would say in our own day, secular, right? And learning how to live life beside these people. Yeah. I just feel like Paul is cool. He's it's really cool. cool. Yes. Yes. Uh, I feel like the story of him just standing in those people who just spend most of their time is just thinking, you know, and that's that's how Roman culture was. Those people were doing uh, in that time. They would wake up. They beg. Basically, their main thing was to look for the new, new thing that is happening, new topic that is uh, that is hot. You know, and yep. then just like, okay, we'll go and think deeper about those things and then process them. And then we'll sit down and someone will come and share this opinion and then we'll start understanding and talking about that. Yep. And then he just stands with there, stands there and then he has this amazing speech. So I, yep. as someone who really love um, apologetics and really love philosophy, I just feel like Paul is cool. That's why I'm, I like having his name. Yes. And I think that's really important to speak to our own model. Again, the Bible is contextualized, right? Athens is not the U.S. or the West or whatever. But there are certain similarities that we have to be able to aware. And you touch on something really good. This idea of loving everything that's trendy. I mean, that is Athens to a T. Um, and Paul is offering something that's timeless, right? And he's basically saying, you know, in his speech, there's an unknown God. You have a statue. You have all these statues mm -hmm. of gods, but there's an unknown. Well, I'm here to tell you. It's such a strategic, powerful, rhetorical tool, right? He's not actually saying like, you know, this statue is actually Jesus or whatever. But what he's basically pulling at is you guys recognize there's gods you don't even know about. Well, I'm actually here to tell you about the God that you don't know yet, but now you can, right? 
Uh, yeah, the dude was a genius by far. I mean, an absolute genius. And there's a reason why God used him mm-hmm. to lay such a foundation for the early church. So he returns to Jerusalem eventually. There is this foreboding on his return, on his third trip. So he's gone three times now. And um, he spent a significant time in a city called Ephesus. But anyways, yeah, you guys can read the book of yes, Acts. You'll get yeah. there. But anyways, he basically is going to return to Jerusalem at one point. And everywhere he goes, people are basically prophesying that he's going to get arrested, that he shouldn't go. But Paul feels that the Spirit is actually leading him to go, which is another interesting thing that we, you know, we have to wrestle with. Because these people are hearing what the Spirit's saying, that these bad things are going to happen to you in Jerusalem. And their interpretation of it is, you shouldn't go. But Paul is confident that the Holy Spirit is actually saying, through these things, you need to go. So anyways, he arrives. Basically, the church is saying, you know, you need to do this Jewish ritual to prove to the Jews, like, that you're still Jewish or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I'm willing to do that. Because to Paul, it wasn't that he wasn't a Jew anymore. He even says, I became like the people I was trying to witness to, right? Not in a compromising way, but in a way that could reach them, right? Um, but he was still a Jew at heart. That's who he is. So he's willing to honor them, willing to do what it takes. But he does have Gentile traveling companions with him. Um, and people see him in the temple thinking he brings one of them into the temple, which he's not supposed to do, uh, which he doesn't. But this is already in the time period getting to a boiling point in Jerusalem. Tensions between Rome and the Jewish people and Judea in general, Palestine in general, are at an almost all-time high. And in a few years, it will boil over into a war, right? Which is AD 70, which we've talked about a little bit, where the temple's destroyed, Jerusalem's destroyed, and the Jewish nation as an entity is gone from the face of the earth till 1960 or 40, I don't remember what. But anyways, that's an aside. He gets arrested, the Roman centurion and his whole deal rescue him from getting killed by the mob. He speaks to them in Aramaic, and then the second he talks about Gentile inclusion into the people of God, people lose their stuff. Um, And so then he's on trial, it's back and forth. The Pharisees wanna find a way to kill him, right? He, again, is a master uh, speaker and gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees to turn on each other by talking about the resurrection. He says, I'm on trial for the resurrection, right? And they're all like, hey, you know. Um, so anyways, eventually he appeals to Caesar, right? And um, just kind of as a, an apologetic, like, yeah, he didn't do anything wrong. There's a later ruler that comes and basically hears Paul speak. And he says, okay, yeah, like if he wouldn't appeal to Caesar, I would have just let him go. But to Caesar, you will go, right? And so He heads off uh, eventually on this long journey, gets shipwrecked on an island, gets bit by a snake. People think he's cursed. Then the snake doesn't do anything. Then they think he's a god. (laughs) Long story short, Paul arrives in Rome, and this is where the story ends. We don't, in the actual book of Acts, we don't get to really know what happens, which if you like story is a huge bummer, you know what I mean? Uh, There's hints to it in his letters um, of what might eventually happen but um luke i think purposely leaves it off because rome is the center of the world at this point it's like new york city right and so the gospel is gone all over the roman world and now it is at the heart of rome there's already a church there there's already a people that exist there that are jesus followers but paul's message has now reached rome which is a huge part of what he wanted to do and so 
the Acts story kind of leaves off like, okay, this is where Paul's story is going to end, but there's a whole story to continue, right? And uh, that's where we can begin to think, how do we live in the book of Acts, right? How do we begin to live out this same story that these men and women picked up and really believed could transform the world? Yes. Yeah, I I think I agree with, with um, Luke's ending because I just feel like, has someone who reads who's reading this story like centuries after after it happened you start realizing how rome how like him ending the story there just was the perfect thing because it reached us you know the story is here now we can read we're talking about this Mm. right now here and the three in one of every three people in the world is uh says they are christians you know, so I just feel like that was the perfect ending. I just feel like it's from here. If he had extended, it would just be an unending uh, book. Yeah. And he was, probably was tired of just researching everything. I feel like, look, he did an amazing job. I think he was, he's one of the people who like went really in depth in just researching and looking through all the other books and trying to compel and write these amazing, these yep. two amazing books, the book of Luke and the Acts. And in the sense of giving us now a very big and clear picture of what was happening back on that time. Yeah, and I think, you know, there's several theories out there of why Romans en- or Acts ends the way it does. And one of them might be that up until the point with which Luke was writing, this is how far they got. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but let's maybe shift gears just very briefly before we wrap up and just kind of maybe give a brief overlay of the letters Mm -hmm. right so we're talking about i'm not going to list all of them but like the book of romans galatians the corinthian books thessalonians colossians philemon timothy blah 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 and most of these are written by paul the book of john the book of revelation peter obviously written by the name of the authors yes um but really these letters kind of they are being written throughout the book of Acts. So if Acts is the narrative, the letters are the the window inside the everyday interactions, if that makes sense. And the, the questions that people had, the challenges the church faced. And, you know, again, I think what's really important for us to understand with the letters, this is kind of where I want to go with it at least, um, is we have to contextualize these things. We as the church have taken some of the things that are in these letters and made them kind of like the mosaic law that this is how you dress or this is how you behave in the sense of the example i'm thinking of is okay when it talks about men shouldn't cover their heads and women should cover their heads there are people who literally um, believe that right Um, that we should do that today but that is a cultural context thing in which paul is basically saying you know it is appropriate for men to dress and look like men in women to dress and look like women, right? Um, in that, even in the passage where he talks about modesty, this was a huge eye opener to me when he talks about like women don't put on a ton of makeup and jewelry and stuff. And people have taken that as like, don't be seductive or blah, blah, blah. But what he's really saying, because if you look in the Corinthians book, he just gets done talking about the dis- disparity between the rich and the poor. And he's basically saying to them, why would you, if, as the people of God, who come from all different backgrounds when you come to church don't 
make your doll yourself up to look how important, how rich, how prestigious you are, like to make yourself seem like you're superior to your poor brother or sister next to you. It's kind of like the person who intentionally rolls up in the brand new Mercedes Benz or, you know, Land Rover Defender with a brand new name brand suit and like then they sit down next to the guy who's wearing sweatpants and a hoodie in church and just kind of sniff their nose at him, right? Because that guy wearing the sweatpants and the hoodie, maybe he's never, didn't know what to wear. He can't afford a suit. You get what I'm saying? And so Paul, to us today, I think would be disgusted by some of the, the, the cult, church culture things we've created from his own words without understanding the context in which he was saying them. Yes, um, and I feel like that's the big, the good thing and also the bad thing about the, the, the pistols in the sense of there's so many things there that we can take and we can apply them in today's church. I feel like um, the book of uh, Ephesians, there is one of the good book that we can take and through those books look at the church now and i feel like that's where we normally fail we just try to take the things directly to the church now Mm -hmm. but we we have to use these epistles as um as a loop as spectacles as glasses Mm -hmm. that with them you put those glasses on and then you look at the church today you look at like what are the things that the church Paul was trying to address in those churches back yeah. there that we're doing them now or what other things that we're repeating them now and from there we have we start taking the steps start applying the suggestion that it brings in this has a solution for all these problems but we fail to do that yeah. sometimes we just want to take directly what is being yeah. said there and we want to apply to what is happening today and I feel like that's when we really fail a lot in learning from those 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 letters and another thing is he you can see in these letters that those people who are going through all these things they are still learning still still figuring out how to live uh, with inequality in the church you know because you find these churches that they are different you know there you have find these rich people and the poor people all living together in Jews one, and Gentiles exactly yeah. and Jews and Gentiles all living together in one specific place yeah. and how to live how to make this place not like outside you know outside yeah. you go and find all this difference you go and find all these inequalities yep. but how when so how to live and not repeat now not repeat what is happening outside in the church yeah. and I feel like that's one big thing that we have to do even today in church today that's one thing we have to look back and say hey let's not do that let's not repeat that let's not go back to those mistakes that were done uh back on that time and let's make sure that we are bringing equality in the church that we are helping the poor people because that's one that was one of the big things back on back on on time back on those stories yeah i think honestly If Paul could pick on the biggest issue of our day um, when it comes to our churches, and it's kind of a result of the Protestant Reformation. If you're not familiar with that, up until the Protestant Reformation, there was only one church, Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. right? And the Protestant Reformation brought a lot of good things, a lot of reform that needed to happen. 
in the idea that the Bible could be read in your own language. Up until then, it was read only in Latin, kind of like uh, I think Muslims, it's only in Arabic, like the, the I'm putting air quotes, real Quran or whatever, um, Quran. Um, but to have the language in your own Bible meant that cultures could contextualize the Bible in their own languages, which is good, but what it did was it seg segregated us again. They say that Sunday morning is actually the most segregated day of the week because especially in the States, you have your Southern Baptist Church, which is the black church and the white church. Mm -hmm. You have the Hispanic. We literally have our own Hispanic district within the Assemblies of God for Spanish-speaking churches. You know what I mean? They're part of the AG, but they, they self-govern. They're not a, like governed by the same body. You know what I mean? And I think Paul would be absolutely horrified yes. to find that our stylistic preferences, our superficial differences, and even our our meaningful differences have divided us in such a way that we would rather be different churches. Um, and I'm not talking about on belief grounds. I'm talking about on racial, cultural you know, preferential differences. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That we weren't mature enough to work it out together and be willing to compromise uh, on the things we can compromise to be one family. But instead, we just kind of hit and run anytime we run into anything we don't like, right? And that may be a more American perspective on how church is. I don't uh, know. I don't, think, I don't think it's just American perspective. Okay. Uh, for example, one example uh around my house like in one kilometer radius you find a lot i think we have seven churches there sure. yeah. you know we have seven churches there are places that it, it's even four churches that if one church is playing music the other church can hear it you know so if you have a small church you don't have a good speakers then it's going to be a problem because <laughs> this guy's just blasting the sound yeah. blasting the sound and everything you know and so you find that you still find that even in in here you know and one day i was just walking i was just imagining this thing just imagine Botswana has a lot of meat you know like cow meat and everything just imagining if one leader of this church just decide you know what let's do something let's take one sunday we won't have service but we'll just invite all people from these churches we'll kill a cow we'll have a, a, a barbecue and we'll just sit there and then mm. hang out you know i feel like that should not be easy if we're all christians you know mm. that that should not be hard if yeah. we're all christians you know i feel like yes we can respect the difference in the sense of like the rules of dressing and all all those things which is another debate that from, uh, from, yeah. from another day but i just feel like we should be able to do that we should be able yeah. to coexist we should be able to come together and sit in one place yep. you know without any conflict and i just feel like that's one of the things that really makes me sad with christianity with christianity right now because we made these differences into something that make us not want to live together not want mm. to be together in one space in one same place you know and i just feel like that's way way far off what paul was trying to do uh, yeah. back in this time so it just it's just been really hard for me to see that in mozambique it exists i feel like it exists it exists here too and mm. 
I hope one day we will be able to do that because imagine, remember the one of the big goals is just God wants us to become this really big community. Uh, I was just reading uh, some I don't remember where, but they were saying that um, I as a if I am Christian, I should feel much much more closer to some to a christian in brazil to a christian mm -hmm. in, in 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 usa to a christian in every other place you know but this difference just create this 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 separation just creates this difference so we're not having this global it's not a global community mm -hmm. it's this small community and the only thing uniting them is the name jesus christ yeah yeah and you know just to bring clarity in the sense of like there will always be a need for churches, right? And churches of different variety or whatever. And I'm not saying, you know, all churches need to merge into one universal thing or whatever uh, that might be. But I do think there has to be, a, like you're saying, a mutual love. And I think that's the most important thing. Can we mutually love our brothers and sisters in Christ rather than always looking at the differences or using that as a barrier to kind of buffer each other. Mm -hmm. Like one of the first questions that people ask when you talk to them on campus is like, oh, what church are you yes. from, right? Because they want to evaluate you through that lens of whatever your answer is. And I get some of that is to protect you. Like, you know, there are quote unquote churches out there that do really wonky stuff and like they shouldn't be considered a church. But, um, but at another level, there is also that I'm ready to put up my guard against you immediately rather than saying, yeah, we do have some differences, you know, um, and that, you know, if we have some major, major differences, yeah, maybe we can't always move forward um, in a gospel sense, but I can still love you as someone as value as another human being. And I think that's there in some ways, but I think it can be enriched yes. in certain places, certain countries, certain peoples do a better job of that than others but that i think would you know to maybe wrap this up be paul's big criticism of us is can we get back to being a unified voice and body again and stop infighting all the time mm -hmm. quit trying to cut yeah. each other down and yeah anyways so i think bro this is a great place to end um and wrap up unless you have any final thoughts um on the letters in the book of acts no i think we touched most of the most of it and I feel like this is where a little bit of responsibility of each listener to go back and read their own Bible seats. And I feel like for the epistles, for the letters, I think the, the episode we did on how to read the Bible mm. helps it a lot in the sense you have tools to kind of understand most of it and not just understand it, but also just go back there are a lot of resources out there that can help you do the uh, hermeneutic and exegesis all, all these books and there are a lot of things that we can learn from these epistles definitely definitely and um even in our d groups we'll continue to do that um yeah guys uh we're so grateful for this and like paul said remember this is the biblical story we're just trying to give you a guide a roadmap as you are reading the bible for yourselves um, but our last, I can't believe I'm saying this, our, we've been doing this series forever. Yes. Our last episode in this series is going to be on the book of Revelation. We know it's a very unique book, a very dense book, a very confusing book. Um, and there's a lot of opinions out there. And, you know, we're hoping not to just share our opinions, but maybe just give a good roadmap on how to read Revelation well. And that will be our final episode in this series. And I'm excited, man. Yes, I am excited. Every time 
I go back and start reading more and understanding more the book. It helps me. It's one of the books that I really avoid in my whole life. <laughs> yes. Uh, I feel like Revelation and Leviticus, Numbers and Leviticus, those three books were books that I always avoided. <laughs> I would always skip them whenever I would read my whole Bible. So The Bible in a year minus those. <laughs> yes, minus those three. So yeah, I'm excited about this. Yep. So stay tuned, guys, for next week. Yep. Bye. Hey everyone, this is just a brief reminder that if you've had a question come up from this discussion or you just have a question in general that you want to ask us on the podcast, uh, now is the time to do it. We want to make sure that we get these questions in for the end of the season Q&R and we cannot wait to hear your guys' questions, to read them, and to be able to respond. But we can't do that unless you send them to us. So make sure if you're a part of Kingdom Movement already, you can personally message us your question or you can send them via our Instagram, and we will make sure to read those, and hopefully we will answer your question on the season finale question and answer, uh, question and response episode. All right, thanks, guys.